out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, all the way from Liverpool, it's going to be the turn of It's In Material because I spoke to kind of one half of the band, really, John Campbell, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff because he goes back to um, way back to the 70s in a band called The Yachts. Then it's in material with such hits as Ed's Funky Diner and also um, Driving Away From Home. Who can forget that classic? From the album Life Is Hard and Then You Die. Anyway, they have got a new album that is coming out very soon, or it's just about out this autumn 2020, House for Sale, which is going to be discussed in this very exciting interview. Um, so yes, after some casual chat with John, as you do in the world, that is showbiz. We got down to that particular release and the story behind it, because this is material that they recorded in the early 90s. But anyway, look, this is a spoiler, isn't it? Anyway, John, tell us about the new album. It's, it's coming up next month, uh, House for Sale. Yeah, it should be kind of officially released about midway through the month, but they'll start taking uh, pre-sales at the beginning of September for it. Right. It's, it's going through one single outlet, which is Burning Shed, uh, looking after it for us. Because we had a lot of trouble, as you know, the pledge collapsed. And then we, had, we got no money from the pledge whatsoever, but we wanted to honour the pledges. So we had to refund the whole thing, get the pressings done. So the first press more or less completely goes to the pledges and we don't kind of make anything from that. So uh, yes. better for us to just go through Burning Shed. God, that must have been hard. Was that kind of heartbreaking? It was, yes. It, it was the last thing we expected. We'd had that kind of many little bumps along the road making the album. To actually get pledged to go down was a... Was a very difficult period for us. Yeah, because I noticed, I, I remember a couple of years ago, you'd been sort of working on a project, you'd work together on a project every Friday. Was this the beginning of that, was that project that a few years ago that has accumulated in this album that's coming up in September? Well, kind of. But uh, what happens is uh, Javis and I have always worked together one day a week uh, through the years. And um, about two years ago, or maybe a little longer, uh, no, about six years ago, actually, thinking about it now, we were moving studios. We were taking our studio to new premises. So we were taking all the fittings out, and I looked on this shelf, and there was old kind of test pressings, and, and I found this little uh, neat kind of cardboard box. And in it were the masters of demos that we'd done in Castle Sound in East Lothian with um, Callum Malcolm. And those demos were done something like 30 years ago. And the idea was to start the third album from that set of demos. But um, for many, many reasons, it, it didn't materialize, it didn't come together. And uh, Callum sent us the masters in this cardboard box. And of course, some years ago, we just put them on the shelf and we forgot about it. Yes. So in this move, we rediscovered them and we thought we, we managed to get Calm at the time offered us the studio because he was reviewing a new machine called the DA88, I think it was called. And uh, that was like an eight-track DAT form of digital recording. It was a Tascam device. 
So he had about four of those uh, slaved together in his studio. So he, he wanted to work with somebody so he could test that equipment and review it. So we went up for a couple of weeks, I think it was, and did these demos. So um, Callum still had those and sent them down to us sometime. I, I don't know when now. And it was only on finding them that move that John and I actually managed to discover the elevator studios in Liverpool at one time because this D8, 88 things called is, is completely redundant now, but elevator studios used to use them and had a number in a storeroom. So we took the masters down to there and we transferred them to a Pro Tools session. And, and Jabs and I have just been kind of correcting all the digital clicks that happened over the years and just piecing the recordings back together and finishing off any parts that weren't there. I mean, some of the demos maybe didn't have a chorus or some didn't have a string part or something. So we're making these additions as well to the album. And it's, so it's taken, like you say, those Fridays that we always did meet. We've been working on this every Friday for a couple of years or so. Yes. And so so that that sort of that box that you found with the master tapes, is that the all that's the you know you've sort of brought together was it like how many tracks have you taken from that i mean oh yeah that's the question is is it that that's going to be that's been released or have you recorded some new material which wasn't part of that story from 30 years ago no it's um it's it is exactly the 10 demos that were recorded with callum the idea for john and i was just to finally get that that piece of material out there you know because when we heard it when we took it out of the boxes we thought there is a lot of interesting and pretty good material there so uh, so let's try and complete it as we meant to all those years ago because we have many more songs and many bits of pieces hanging around in the studio but we just wanted to start there again which would have been the third album yes and what did it feel like i mean Discovering, you know, the, the kind of the sound, the, the sort of the vocal, the lyric, the melody, you know, did, did it feel quite straight? Had you sort of forgot about it and then went, my God, yes, I can remember doing this now. Um, I had at one point forgotten about them. As I said, they were just put away on this shelf. But when I heard them, I knew what they were immediately. And, uh, and I, I was surprised, actually, I thought they were quite contemporary sound. They were kind of timeless. They, did, they didn't sound like from the 1990s or anything like that. So uh, that, I think that was one of the reasons we decided to pursue it. And yeah. While we were working in uh, elevator studios, we did quite a bit of the work in elevator studios in Liverpool. I mean, the chap's an old friend of mine, Tim Speed, who runs it. He, he used to be in groups years ago, but he, uh, he kept popping up the stairs wondering what was playing because he, he himself thought it was, it was a contemporary sound he didn't think it was from back in the 90s how it used to sound back then yes well actually I suppose with production I mean it's interesting because certain production sound really dates a record doesn't it and there was the kind of the mainstream 80s sound for that kind of Trevor Horn-esque and some of it yeah. was kind of brilliant to hear um, like ABC and I don't know perhaps a bit Frankie but a lot of it that you know people started to have that a lot for them you know the top the top 10 you know stuff that we sort of hear and see on top of the pops during the 80s and that sounds really dated and kind of quite jarring whereas the indie pop stuff that uh, you know was a lot a lot of it being played on John Peel 
I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it sounds dated, but then I might be getting very biased. But it does sound just like, well, that's just an, that's what records, you know, pop rock records sound like. There isn't that kind of, oh, my God, this sounds really of its time. So did were you in that kind of more of the latter, latter camp in the sense that you didn't sort of try and chase that kind of sound that a lot of producers or a lot of record companies wanted their artists yeah. to get, get into well, the charts? Yeah, I think we were always like that because from the first album that we recorded, originally just before that, a uh, record company had put us in to try a recording with a, a producer that they thought was ideal for us. And we uh, we didn't really get along with him. So uh, John and I wanted to have more say in what was happening, Jarvis and I rather. So we, um, so we asked the record company, could we use just the engineer to do the album? So the engineer happened to be David Bascom, who went on to engineer, uh, produce rather albums by bands like Tears for Fears and all that. Uh, so he kind of engineered the album, the first album, Life's Hard for us. And, and John and I really, and Charles and I rather did most of the production. The production ideas came from us rather than being funneled through a producer. And it's the same as with song, we worked with Callum Malcolm, who was, had the producer's role, but we worked together as a team in, in putting that sound and, together. And the same with this album, uh, um, uh, with Callum, we did the same way of working. So our approach to working really was never going to lead to like the 80s production sound or the 90s production sound. It was always what we did, that's the thing. Yes, absolutely. And just kind of, it's always kind of curious. I mean, I'm in my, um, yes, mid-50s now. I was born in 64. My early kind of musical moments, you know, were, were obviously the kind of uh, very early 70s. You know, I, I probably listened to what my mum had on the radio in the kitchen during the late 60s. But, you know, that sound, you know, doesn't, I don't have mem much memory of that. But, you know, obviously there was bits and pieces that that I kind of grew to love because I love Burt Packerack and the Carpenters and some kind of yeah. that soft pop stuff, which I still think is amazing to this day. But um, it was kind of, I suppose, the glam period. What were your kind of early kind of musical awakening, you know, when you when you started to kind of become more aware of, you know, the radio, Top of the Pops, listen to records? Well, I suppose I came from that generation that it was just... Um... You know, the Beatles were everywhere by the time I got to kind of listening to music at that kind of age. You know, by the time I was 10, the Beatles were all over the place. So those, you know, Beatles and the Rolling Stones and those kind of things, the early Rolling Stones, and that were, were the first things that I really kind of started to take notice of. But I've always had a, a liking for R&B and soul music as well, right the way through, because my father used to play the piano, he used to play a lot of old... Um, jazz and blues songs on the piano so uh, so when I was young there was always a sense of that kind of music in the house as well so uh, I was talking to somebody the other day and um, who'd listened to the uh, album and said and suggested was um, Barry White an influence of ours at any point <laughs> but, but in a funny way he kind of is you know, you know Barry does kind of some kind of talking and singing does a, a narrative folk as well and that kind of thing I've always enjoyed and the Love Unlimited Orchestra. So all, all these kind of things along the way have been influences as to what we do, you know. And the very story of the being, you know, the idea of being a narrative through, through a piece of music. So I think Jalson and I have always looked at it that way, that we, we're kind of framing the story and we're putting in a, a, a musical landscape. You know, so that's what we, we try and construct. 
Yeah, because you do have an amazing history in, you know, in music, because, you know, it's that you have the in, it's immaterial. But then before that, you were very much part of that Liverpool art scene world, you know, and, and Eric's, which kind of was such yeah. a sort of a, a big thing from from, you know, what I've gathered over the last few years with, you know, people like Death School and then Jane Casey and Bill Drummond. And, and you were in a band called The Yachts, weren't you? So that must have been quite an exciting time to suddenly find yourself being part of a quite a, an active scene that has become quite well documented as well. So with when you look back at the yachts and that period, you know, you were supporting people like the um, the Sex Pistols and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's 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 quite some story you've got there, isn't it? So what's your kind of feelings and memories of that period now? Well, um, I arrived in Liverpool in 75 to go to the art school here. And so yachts were... Um, an art school band. They came from, uh, there were five of us that got together in the art school uh, and used um, deaf school's equipment to start with and uh, finally started. I remember kind of, um, basically I suppose I, I remember once it actually got going because we kind of became the Eric's house band at one point. We, would, we played every Thursday at Eric's. So, uh, and we knew very well uh, Roger Eagle and, and Peter Fulwell, who also managed the Eric's Club, uh, became the manager of the group as well. So, um, so we had very close ties with that kind of scene back then. And, um, yeah. and it, was, it was very exciting, it was a change, but it wasn't kind of like, you know, you always hear people saying how punk came along and just brushed other music aside. Well, I, I, ne I never thought it was like that, it was, it was, but it was exciting. And, um, and it gave everybody a, an opportunity to create, I think. Yes. And, and the interesting thing with the yachts, just to, you know, is A, you know, they, you know it was the, the, this sort of house band for the, the art school, which must have been very kind of um, exciting in the mid 70s, mid to late 70s. But also, you know, you got on the John Peel show, you did the sessions there. And like a lot of bands struggle to sort of break out of their kind of little world and little narrative, you know, and um, environment. But you, you know, the band kind of elevate, got kind of like pro progressed and elevated quite quickly, not just to the John Peel show, but to, to sort of suddenly recording an album in, in New York. Um, that must, looking back at that, did you, does it feel a little bit surreal how quickly things moved? The beginning was very quick, really, because... Um, when I look back to the very beginning, like I say, we, used to, we came from the art school and we'd play the art school dance and maybe play this, this pub near the art school called the Masonic. We'd play in there some evenings. And, and we'd, do this, um, we'd do this Thursday night, it was, a, a slot at Eric's every week. And it was, it was probably about the fourth or fifth time um, we, we'd done that when... Uh, um, a couple of chaps from Stiff Records in London came down and saw us and signed us. So, and and Deaf School's manager was called um, what's he called now? Frank Silva. He uh, he signed us up for management as well. So within you know, I suppose half a dozen concerts at Eric's, we got a record deal and had a record out. So that that became became very quick. Yes, and had you you know when you went to art, where did you come from before? Liverpool, or were you from Liverpool who just went to college there? 
No, I didn't. I came from um, just an area just north of Manchester called Saddleworth. Right. So how was this kind of affecting your kind of studies at the art school when you were like, oh God, actually we've, we've got a, a record deal and, and now we've got to, um, we recorded our album in New York City. I just wondered how you were managing to sort of balance the two. I mean, talk about creativity. I mean, amazing. Well, I actually, um, the way its material got started as well, after a while I left yachts and uh, went back. I missed a year of my art school course, but I went back to art school to complete the course. And uh, it was after that that its material started. So it was a very kind of hectic time and a lot going on. Yes. Um, it, was, it was fascinating looking back really at it. Well, absolutely. I mean, did you, had you sort of, was the yacht something that you weren't, you know, like 100% committed to? And you, you know, because obviously a lot of people leave bands when they're not feeling like they're going anywhere, whereas that was definitely like things were definitely happening. Did you, was it just something that didn't feel like it was resonating with you so much? No, I really like the yachts. Uh, well, yachts, as we used to call ourselves, we never, we didn't, we didn't drop the the. <laughs> yeah. But, um, um, I really like them, and as as friends, they're fantastic, and I'm still in, in touch with most of them today. But uh, I, I kind of didn't want to become um, pigeonholed as, as a band like that. I wanted to write other kinds of music, you know. So, I mean, yachts would like you know, first chorus, first chorus, middle eight, and, and out, you know, that kind of thing. Though that notion of the short. A frenetic pop song, you know, a power pop it was called. I think the chaps at uh, Stiff Records dubbed as a power pop band when we were there. So. Yes, power and pop. I didn't, want, I didn't want to, I didn't mind being that for a bit, but I didn't want to find myself, you know, another 20 years down the line being a power pop band. So that's why <laughs> I kind of moved on a bit. Yes, absolutely. So did you form its immaterial when? Yachts finished, and not, not yachts when your course finished. Yes, around that, and it, it kind of it fell together a bit as material because uh, I came back to do to finish off the course, and during that period, I got to know uh, John Whitehead, and uh, we started kind of playing together and putting bits of music together. Jarvis Whitehead, that is. We always call it. He's actually called John Jarvis Whitehead, but. Uh, Right. We call, him, we call him Jarvis because otherwise people talking to us, we don't know who they're talking to. <laughs> but, um, I met uh, Jarvis and we, we started playing around with some musical ideas together and then yachts started to fall apart a bit. So Henry was, was back in Liverpool quite a lot of time, Henry Priestman, so Henry came around and he'd play with us. So Henry and then Martin Dempsey, who was the bass player with yachts, He'd stand in at times when he, when he came around. So there was a kind of period when it kind of, I don't know, it was fading through from yachts to its material, that kind of thing. Yeah. So did, if, did if, oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say eventually it just became, I mean, the core of its material became um, Jarvis Whitehead and I, because uh, I think Henry went on then to form the Christians with the Christian uh, brothers, who Henry met via. Uh, the Ed's Funky Diner single. They did some uh, backing vocals for us on that. And Henry met them there. And Henry was playing that session as well. 
and decided he'd like to go off and, and try and put a band together with them. Which, and they've been very successful, as you know. So, so yes, they had chart success. And did you enjoy, I mean, did you, I mean, no one sort of particularly, I mean, I know they do courses and whole music, but did you sort of find your voice and songwriting in those kind of, that, that latter part of the 70s when you were in yachts and then sort of started It's Immaterial? Did, you, did it sort of feel like the thing that you really kind of wanted to focus on? Uh, yes, I think it did. Uh, it's, uh, it's material was very different uh, than Yachts for me because the songwriting that we did in Yachts, I, I did with Henry Priestman. They were always kind of co-authorship of all the songs. Whereas, although it's the same with its material, uh, one usually takes the lead and quite often like, we play around with ideas and, uh, and kind of cherry pick what we think is good musically. And if there's a, you know, if there's a start of a good musical, a good narrative, a good story in there as well, then we, we go and work on, I usually work on the, on the narrative, the story, and John and Jarvis works on a couple more musical parts. And then we come together and, and again try and, I don't, it's like a Rubik's Cube, just try and put the things together, you know. So it's a very different process the way we work it with the yeah. city. I don't just sit there. You know, with Jarvis and, and we strum guitars and sing lyrics to each other. We don't do that. Whereas in yachts with Henry, we do that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And during that period, I mean, because the eighties is probably the period I'm slightly obsessed with. I mean, there was that that change of sort of um, this is quite simplified, really. But you know, we'd had the punk and post punk, and then the early a few you know bands like you know I suppose Simple Minds, U2. Echo and the Bunnymen and Julian Coke. But then kind of 83, the indie kind of sound of, of the Smiths and people like that really seemed to sort of hit something quite definite for the next five, six years, really. Um, you know, John Peel was obviously, you know, champion of a lot of those bands. And we'd had sort of Orange Juice as well. But then, you know, like I said, there was the June Brides, the Smiths, um, the Go-Betweens, the Chills. You know, it's a phenomenal night of bands that started to sort of emerge out of that period. And also during the very early 80s, there would have been a lot of high unemployment. So you'd, a lot of people had sort of become, on, you know, gone on job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes. So that gave them almost like an indirect grant to um, concentrate on whatever they wanted to be in a band, which was always quite handy. So, you know, there was definitely quite a scene at that time in the, in the 80s when you were getting its immaterial together did you feel a little you know a certain excitement during that period when you were working up to your you know the, the first album we were definitely excited about doing the first album yes but it, it finished said there was a scene and there was a there was a liverpool scene as well you know the, like you mentioned echo and the bunny men and, and uh, uh china crisis and uh, what's the, mod and all these kind of Bands, but we were never in a Liverpool scene at all. <laughs> Although we were here, you know, and, um, we never felt like we were part of that scene. We had like Pete Fulwell, our manager, had um, a little sixteen-track studio. We used to go there and work there, but we didn't kind of hang around with other bands and that kind of thing. We didn't really feel part of the scene at all. Right. Because it kind of, because not coming from Liverpool, and I know Cherry Red Records brought out that compilation a few years ago with um, for Liverpool. They did one on Manchester, and there was five CDs. And you know, there's this kind of Eric's, and there's all that kind of scene. And yeah. as I said, Jane Casey and uh, Bill Drummond, and you know Holly Johnson. And you kind of get that feeling that you were all living in the same terrace road, 
just one big happy community of people hanging out with Courtney Love and all that kind of stuff. And, and so it's kind of easy to sort of imagine it was just all happening in, in Liverpool yeah. at that stage. But probably if you were living there, it probably the reality wasn't quite like that. Not quite that, no. I mean, people like uh, Bill Drummond and Jane Casey and uh, Pete Wiley of Wild, these are the people that I kind of knew at the time. I mean, I know that uh, Bill Drummond and, uh, had a band called Big in Japan at one time, and they kind of did their first concert supporting yachts, and they came to the concert in the, in the back of the yachts transit van in with the equipment and that kind of thing. So, so we did have some kind of ties with people like that, but um, uh, I didn't feel... Henry went on, Henry Priestman from Yachts, went on to have more ties into that kind of scene than I did. But, yes. And then, you, you you know, obviously one of the people, there was a lot of gatekeepers at that time. You know, we had the music press, which were huge, you know, circulation like the NME, Melody Maker, Sounds Record Mirror. And then we had, you know, like John Peel as well. And and every town and, and city had at least one sort of alternative club night somewhere down the line. I mean, Norwich had the, the art centre and probably on a Monday or Tuesday, there'd be some, you know, Indian night. So that kind of helped create, you know, like this kind of organic world that, that happened. And, you know, record sales at that time were, were quite big. And obviously, you know, a blessing from the great John Peel always kind of gave bands a feeling that they were at least, there was some sort of progress. So that, that you know, you managed to get four kind of uh, John Peel sessions, which must have felt quite like, yes, he likes <laughs> us. Something's happening. Yeah, he was good, John. He, uh, bless him, he, he, he really did support us in those early years. And um, I know that when we did, we released the first single called The Gigantic Raft. And um, what we did there is we went into Amazon Studios here in Liverpool. Pete Fulwell, the manager, came around and said, here's some money go into the studio on this day and just make something. He, he wasn't concerned whether he had a particular song he wanted to record or something. So we wrote Gigantic Raft while we were in the studio that day and then mixed it and uh, put it out, maybe, I don't know, six weeks later or something. And John Peel just took it as his favourite record that year so far. So played it to death and offered and started offering his fairly regular sessions after that. So he, he was very supportive indeed, yeah. Yes. And did you, I mean, you obviously played a lot uh, live, a lot with yachts. And um, what about its immaterial? Did, was that much of a live entity? Never was, really, because it was kind of a bit more complicated. Um, we did, uh, Janice and I went out for a while. I don't know if it's kind of a bit of a fashion for using reel to reels on stage. Oh, yes, Cocteau a, Twins, yes. Yeah, right. that kind of thing. See, we did, like, for instance, we played with the Cocteau tin, Twins and used the, the same tape machine one evening. <laughs> so we did, we went out as a, a duo in that fashion quite a lot. And, uh, but we also had, uh, couple of tours as a group as well but the group would be you know getting on to like six and seven members so there's a lot of people if you wanted to try and if you wanted to try and kind of replicate the music we were making then you needed quite a number of musicians to do it so it, uh, it was a bit difficult in that sense so it, it has had various live musical forms it's material but it's never been a constant touring band yes never. A studio band. Did you, and so, you know, you suddenly hit kind of um, 
gold, didn't you? Uh, God, that was the, so the eighties. Um, yes, driving away from home. So, so how did that? I mean, everyone must have asked you that. How did that sort of record come together? Because that was obviously. I always remember there was the Triffids who did Wide Open Road, and it was one of those moments that when you know John Peel played it one's ear slightly pricked up and went, oh, this is, who's this? And it's like, oh, it's immaterial, or the Triffids. I mean, did that, um, when, what was the process of that record coming together? Well, it's, it's one of those kind of, it's one of those things I've said before, where Jarvis came up with this kind of strum. And, uh, and I was talking to him about, the, the, there is, I couldn't really imagine um, a decent kind of, British country and Western song. And I was, we were talking about how difficult the names in Britain are to fit into country and Western songs. And, and so we just decided to write this song about a journey and write it in a country and Western flavor, but over a more contemporary kind of rhythm and backing. So uh, that's how that initiated. But then we took it to the record company and, and we had a, an a and man called um, Ross Stapleton, who he, he mentioned Simple Minds earlier on. He, he was responsible for those as well, but uh, he really liked it and he was very supportive. So he actually got um, Jerry Harrison from Talking Heads in as a producer. And like I said before, we're not, uh, we're not that keen on producers, never have been. So. Uh, what was set up was just before Christmas that year, Jarvis and I had go over to Milwaukee in America and work with Jerry Harrison on this song, which we did. We didn't mind, we thought the trip to America would be quite fascinating anyway. So we went over there and when we got to the studio, um, Jerry Harrison had already got um, a, a musician friend of his who worked in Nashville, a drummer, in to put down the rhythm track. So it had this very, typical American country and Western rhythm. And this is not how uh, Javs and I can conceive the thing. So luckily enough, I could, the engineer could see that we were kind of a little upset by the end of the first day's recording. And uh, we spoke to him and said, do you mind uh, if we start our own multi-track up? And we'll, so we'll do them concurrently. We'll do both versions, the one that Jerry wants and the one that we want. So we did that, and um, so when Jerry would go home about six o'clock or something, we'd get our multi-track out and do our version of it. And um, when we got back to the record company in London, they preferred our version of it, which was a bit upsetting, I think, for Jerry because he wrote us a rather kind of testy. Um, we used to get them in the telegram, it was a thing. Yes. But um, he, he didn't quite have, he wanted to make it too pure a country and western thing, and that's not what we wanted at all. So yeah. that's really how that came about. It was an interesting kind of birth in a way. Yeah, so did you have to work through the evening and the night to... Um, yeah, to we, worked in, we worked in our own time. So Jerry was kind of, would come in and... Um, I don't know about 10 and usually then I'd have some lunch and then he'd knock off at six or something and go home. And it's after that that Janice and I had worked with the engineer for another few hours to, uh, to build a bar version of things. Yes. 
And I remember, you know, because this has been that, that sort of particular period where video had started coming in, you had a big budget for Ed's, or oh, I thought it looked like a big budget, for Ed's Funky Diner. Yes, yeah, it was that, a big budget, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it, had a, it had a sort of like, oh, we're, we're sort of, you know, we're throwing a lot at this, actually. Did you in kind of, how did you kind of feel with that slight pressure to be sort of pushed into more of a, I don't know, trying to sort of hit record sales. I just wondered how that felt with you. It felt awkward, I think. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed doing that, that video because, again, it's like I was saying before, Jams and I had a big say in the storyboards of the video. We worked with a chap called Peter Kerr from Sheffield on that video. But, um, so the process was, was fine, making the video. But I know what you mean at that time. There was... There was a particular template for bands, wasn't there? You know, you, you kind of, you signed, you, you had um, a single put out and to test the water and how things, then the album would come out, then have a second single. And, you know, they'd, they'd ramp it up, like you, you say, just to, uh, to get uh, more behind you. But we never really saw ourselves as a, a pop group, never. You know, yes. We wanted to travel down. Yeah, and because cause I, I do remember sort of chuckling when I heard the title of the album, Life is Hard and Then You Die. I mean, uh, did you, I mean, because the spirit of the 80s, I mean, it, you know, musically looking back, it's like, wow, that's amazing. At the time, it was kind of grim. So were you being slightly ironic at that title? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's a phrase that we, we've been using for a long time, Jarvis and I, you know. And there was always a pause in it, one of us would say, Life's Hard. There'd be a pause, and, and then you die. <laughs> so it's just a bit of comedy between the two of us. But yeah, it was slightly ironic about the, the state of play around us at the time. Yes, and then and then sort of some interesting things kind of then happened. Kind of eighty-seven time the Smiths break up, and and the sort of a lot of the bands who I'd sort of had loved were sort of struggling with either the second album or what happens after the second album. And then Ecstasy appears, and there's that kind of little bit of a whoosh of people getting excited with the next thing. And the you know the sixteen to eighteen year olds say, or sixteen to twenty year olds at that early period of the eighties had suddenly got to a different phase in their life and were having to focus on other things, a new phase, you know, a new group of people came in, you know, who were looking for their next sound. And, and then you sort of, you sort of have that kind of task of then following it up with another album. How did, how did, you know, and obviously when you do an album and you've, that's been your life and work for several years, you always, you know, you probably feel like you need a year off. How did it feel like when you started to think about the second album, Soul? Well, I think the good thing about song, which I, I really enjoy song, I'm still kind of, you know, still um, kind of proud of that, really. Um, we, um, we'd come through that period of life's heart and promoting that. And then, um, and then Jamson and I wanted, it's exactly what you were talking about before, when you felt like people had tried to kind of push you down the road of being a pop group. And we didn't really see ourselves as that. And it co this coincided song with some troubles at the record company because uh, we were on a satellite label of Virgin called Siren. And I think uh, Richard Branson was, having, was expanding the airline at the time. So he was cutting back on Virgin Records. And we knew we had an inkling that Siren Records were going to be no more. 
within a year or so. So, uh, so we got the opportunity to, to do something, we thought. You, know, you get a once in a lifetime opportunity to do things at times. We thought, well, by the time this is completed, this album, that there isn't really going to be the record company much push behind this one at all. So let's do an album that we, we really want, you know, just to ignore, you know, what the record company or the manager is saying you should do. So we, we, we all, I, well, I always wanted to work with Carl Malcolm. I heard a lot of his work. He worked with the Blue Nile and he worked with lots of other acts as well. And, um, and he had a great sound to what he did. I think he was fantastic. And he had his input on lots of different um, artists' albums was fantastic. So we made contact with Callum and Janice and I had written the songs uh, in a very basic, as I said, in a very basic um, demo format. And, um, and we went up to um, Castle Sound in Slothian with uh, Callum. And um, we started working on it. And they developed and they changed constantly. It was very hard to pin um, arrangements and what the song was even about for a long time. We ended up being up in Castle Sound for about nine months doing that thing as it constantly evolved. But um, it, was, it was a really pleasant time. And it was also a time that allowed us to, to look into exactly where we wanted to go. Not, not us and the record company, just what we wanted to do. So by the time that did come out, as I predicted, the record company collapsed, right on the, well, on the verge of collapsing. So there was no more funds really to do any promotions or anything like that. So, so um, but it was, we'd completed something over that period that, that we were really proud of. And we, we thought, well, I still think that song is, my favourites of the albums, and, and that's when I think we really got our voice and, and, and knew what we, where we wanted to go personally. Yes, yeah, and it's what well, is quite interesting because I know there was a lot of kind of um, conversation about the mood of the sound, uh, the mood of the, the kind of the lyrics as well as as the sort of the basic soundscape of it because it was you know there was a certain sense of melancholia within it yeah and and, uh, <laughs> and and a little bit of gloom so did it did that sort of were you sort of digging deep in your sort of personal psyche at that point well probably a bit more but i think there's also there's there's a kind of current of humor in there as well it's, it's a dark kind of humor that you know looks at these kind of topics and and decides you know that this is the narrative i want in, in this song so um more uh, it was more to me about storylines and creating um, something quite visual lyrically as well for people. So um, I wouldn't say for me personally, it was definitely melancholic, but I find that's one of the happiest states I'm in. You know, when I'm, when I'm feeling a bit melancholic, I like it there. I feel good there. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. I'm not very good with the with the kind of, Jazzy hands, happy thing, you know. I, I can't do that. So, would it is it right in saying, no, jazz hands is bad. Is it right in saying that if you didn't have that feeling that things were going to finish, so it's like it doesn't really matter either way because you know the record label is going down. So we might as well just you know enjoy it for what 
years and you went on this path. I mean, if you hadn't had that idea that the record label wasn't going to be there and give you the big push, would you have probably ended up with a quite a different record at that stage? I don't think so, because I think, you know, after that first, going through that first album, um, we wanted to get more kind of musical and more textured, and we, we wanted to find our own feet a little more. And uh, so I don't think we'd have ended up with a different record. We'd, we'd have tried to pursue this, because I, I know that the talk between Jarvis and I was, at the time, well, even if the song album doesn't work, it'll be a good calling card. Maybe uh, producers or, you know, radio plays if they want music this yes. kind of thing. So, which, which happened which actually worked out to a degree but unfortunately fell through as well and a French uh, direct film director called Mary Jimenez uh, flew to Liverpool with a script and she wanted uh, Janice and I to make the music for her new film which was which provisionally called Yag. I don't know where she got that from but anyway so we spent about a year or so making music for this film and there was all talk of you know we'd be going to Paris shortly to work with this with the with the orchestra there and uh, and then she she got so full of beans about the project that she decided she she doesn't want it to be a, a French language film now she'd go to take the whole thing to Hollywood and make an English language version which at that point she was funded by French government for the film they just pulled all the funding out and the whole thing went down the tube so we we were very close to actually getting what we wanted was was to break into that side of things more than as we spoke earlier just being a kind of manufactured kind of pop band yes and did you at that stage did were you much more focused because by then after your experience with the yachts just yachts (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the early year of It's Immaterial, because there was you and Jarvis and Callum, did did that feel, yeah, did that feel just a lot more kind of centred and focused and exactly yes, it did. It, in mood-wise, it did. You know, we, we kind of, all three of us knew what, what we were trying to achieve with it, what kind of pictures we were trying to paint. Um, and, um, and again, you see... It, a lot of the melancholic stuff may come from, besides my input, with Jarvis, um, with Callum being a Scottish musician, he would, uh, one of the ways he works as well, which I used to really like, was he would um, he'd sit down with the chords that we'd put together for a particular track, and he'd work out uh, a drone of three or four notes that would play right through the song. And the, fir- the first thing he'd do and the recording is we set up a drum rhythm and and then Callum and during the song this is Callum would just put down a drone that ran from the first beat of the song right through to the end and then you just find other notes and play around to move it around so so it has a kind of there's a mood there set by that drone a lot of the time you start to work around that which is a very intriguing way of working very writing. Yes. So as you were recording that album, just to get this up to, modern, uh, to the current day, there's, I think there's 12, there's 12 tracks on the album, aren't there? Yeah. Um, but then you also had these other 10 demos that at the time you'd worked on 
but hadn't uh, and, and recorded. And then those are the ones that were put in the box. And then you yeah. you found five, six years ago. Six years ago, I think we found the box again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like something from Blue Peter, isn't it, really? So yeah. then, so just then, just coming back then, then after the album comes out, is that when you decide that's it with the band? Well, not, no, because you don't really break up, do you? But, you know, there, there is a no, sort we, of... We carried on working. We did, we did uh, music, for, like I said before, for radio plays and some theatre stuff and all that. And we've always kind of used music as an outlet. We've always got together and enjoyed creating together. And uh, Jarvis, in the meantime, has, has run a music school in Liverpool here. And I, was, I went to teach it back to the art school to teach at the art school. So we were always in the creative areas, just in other areas. You know? yes. But we always came together once a week to maintain this kind of musical thread through things. So um, I've never felt kind of, uh, you know, I've never felt far away from music. You know, I've always been doing it. Yes, and I know it's um, still, you've got lots to still sort out and do. Well, definitely do. I mean, have you got sort of plans after this to, again, kind of meeting on your, your Fridays? I'm sure it's still going to be Friday, isn't it? Um, of kind of writing new material and sort of bring that a new, another new album one day? Well, all these, all these years we've been meeting, we've written so much material. It's all stacked up in the little studio room we've got. So, but none of it is kind of uh, been produced. They're just all little demo versions of things, you know. So, we we might well go on to start shifting through those tracks as well because we, uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons we kind of wanted to finish this so-called kind of third album as it was or as maybe a doorway to releasing some of this other material as well so that they'd come in the right sequence you know that kind of thing yes that's quite tricky so with this just to get it you're you obviously you got the pledge that went down and then sort of you're going to base you know this is going to be you sort of giving it to the fans as a sort of a big thank you really aren't you yeah, well, everybody who pledged is going to receive the album they pledged for, which means that the, the, there's no income from stream for that from that for us, because um, the money they paid went down with pledge, so we didn't get that money at all. So it's, we're actually outlaying money to produce and honour that pledge. But on top of the pledge, we're also printing enough to put um, both vinyl and CDs and downloads on, obviously in the shop. So yes. maybe at that point, hopefully we might make some money back from it. Yeah, well, God, I hope so. I know, because it's like, for no, no, no sort of fault of your own, you sort of get sort of stuck. And I know quite a few artists had a horrendously heartbreaking moment. And I think, especially if you're much younger, you probably sort of feel that that's kind of the last thing you need when you're, you're sort of starting out on your creative process of music. Mm. Yeah, it was a very difficult time for so many artists, then, I think. But I think a lot of artists as well just kind of down tools and walked away from it, which I thought was a bit, you know, not on really. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand it in a way because, you know, they, they hadn't received the monies that somebody had paid, but at the same time, somebody had attempted to support you, you know, so it's a bit odd 
just walking away, washing your hands of the situation. Oh, that is a bad one, isn't it? Yeah, tricky. So look, just last question. I mean, if you could say something to your an 18-year-old self, you know, in you know, who was starting, and obviously, you know, you've got that kind of amazing career with, you know, in the 70s with yachts, and then it's immaterial that's been kind of part of your life, you know, for the last four decades. I mean, what would you what some you know bit of wisdom would you you know say to them as they were starting out? A uh, bit of wisdom, uh, let's see, would simply just carry on, stay focused and carry on, try and achieve your goals, because they're personal goals at the end of the day. It's not a, you know, if you achieve what you want to achieve, you, you, you'll almost certainly get somewhere, you know, because um, it's like we were saying before, if, if you're being manufactured, if you're being kind of manipulated by other people, well then, we're not seeing the true you, so um, just stay true to your goals, stay focused, and keep on going down that road. And that's the end of the interview. A big thank you to John Campbell from It's In Material, talking about their life in music or his life in music, from the Yelts to his current musical adventure. And I do believe that has come out on Burning Shed Records. That is the title of the album is House for Sale. Anyway, this has been David Eastorp, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And these have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. Anyway, have a great week.